Hey you, this is Takima and welcome to Converge for Change, the business of social justice podcast. Each week we discuss what's really happening on the front lines for racial, social, and economic justice and highlight the amazing grassroots leaders across our communities doing the deep work of freedom. But don't get it twisted, we keep the conversation all the way real. Whether you're a fellow justice warrior or looking to better understand what's happening behind the veil, we unpack it here. Who am I, you ask? I'm the owner of Converge, a social justice consulting firm whose purpose is to accelerate the creation of a radically just new world. I'm Catherine's granddaughter, a mother of two boys, your East Coast round the way homegirl and a proud Howard University graduate. Most importantly, I'm a black woman, a leader in my community and justice is my legacy. So let's get in this. Hey you, welcome back to Converge for Change, the business of social justice podcast. Hope you enjoyed our last episode and part one of a series on the future of philanthropy with Edgar Villanueva. We will be returning to that series in a few weeks, so I'm putting a pin in it. But this week, we're going to take a special detour and talk about the impact and the future of Black arts in this moment. But before we get started, I just want to recap the incredible conversation I had with Edgar, author of the award-winning book, Decolonizing Wealth, and Vice President of Programs at the Schott Foundation for Public Education. If you have not read Decolonizing Wealth, I would definitely advise you to put it on your to-do list. So just in terms of a few highlights, we talked a lot about culture and we're going to continue that conversation today with our special guest, Stephanie McKee from Junebug Productions. But we talked about what is at stake in this moment of pandemic and protest really is this idea of culture, right? We see so many of our culture bearers so many of our elders being disproportionately impacted by COVID in both Native and Black communities, and really an opportunity um, to really stand in solidarity for one another. We also talked about what it means to have multiple identities. You know, Edgar talked about his experience growing up Native, but being a fairer complexion, being Southern, being of the church, which is very similar to my own background, being a Black girl from Connecticut who went to private school but lived in the hood, right? And that so many of us are navigating these multiple identities, but really tapping into them is where we can find our power. Um, We talked a lot about the real need to have a conversation about how we advance equity through philanthropy um, and really redefining this concept of philanthropy in and of itself. We think about it as this formal these formal institutions that hand out grants. But really what Edgar's book does is really gets us to interrogate this whole idea of the accumulation of wealth and the redistribution of that wealth through these formal mechanisms called philanthropy, which themselves have been designed by white supremacist institutional culture, right? So we really have to have a conversation about this wealth to begin with and what it looks like to redistribute that wealth in a way that heals communities. So again, if you have not picked up the book, Decolonizing Wealth, I really hope that you will and spend some time with the seven steps for healing that Edgar outlines in that book. Um, And as he says, the church talks about money as the root of all evil, but he really twists that, right? And thinks more about money as medicine, right? How can we think about money and use it in ways that heal communities? All right. So again, if you missed last week's episode, you can find it 
on the Converge for Change website under the podcast tab. So www.convergeforchange.com under the podcast tab. So today we are talking about Black arts. And I'm so excited to begin this uh, series. We were going to have uh, quite a few folks join us on this journey to really think about what does it mean to tap into art as a way of helping us navigate this moment of pandemic and protest, um, but also really learn more about how our institutions that have held us for so very long are being impacted, disproportionately impacted in this moment of COVID-19. All right, so stay tuned. Um, and I'm so excited to have with me today, Stephanie McKee Anderson, Executive Artistic Director of Junebug Productions. So I'm so excited that our guest this week is Stephanie McKee Anderson. She is a performer, choreographer, educator, and facilitator, and cultural organizer born in Picayune, Mississippi, and raised in New Orleans. She is also the founder of Moving Stories Dance Project, an organization committed to dance education that provides opportunities for dancers and choreographers to showcase their talents. In 2007, she was awarded the Academy of Educational Development's New Voices Fellowship, an award for emerging leaders. For the past 20 years, Stephanie has been involved with Junebug Productions as an artist and educator. Most recently, she served as its Associate Artistic Director of the first annual Homecoming Project 2011, a place-based performance project that addresses the right of return and what home means to communities in post-Katrina New Orleans. In 2006, Stephanie was one of 10 artists who collaborated to create the original production, Uprooted, the Katrina Project co-produced by Junebug Productions. As an artist and cultural organizer, Stephanie is deeply committed to creating work that supports social justice and aligns with the Free Southern Theater and Junebug Productions legacy. And for those of you who aren't familiar with Junebug, Junebug is a homegrown organization, the organizational successor of the Free Southern Theater, which you'll hear us talk about today. In 1963, Field Secretaries John O'Neill and Doris Derby, along with the student leader Gilbert Moses, co-Southern Theater to be the cultural wing of SNCC. Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. FST went on to become a major influence in the Black arts movement. In 1965, FST moved its base from Tougaloo College in Jackson, Mississippi to New Orleans. The theater's first professional tour was of free school project sites. It continued to use arts to support the civil rights movement through a community engagement program and training opportunities for local people interested in writing, performing, and producing theater, as well as touring. You will have to do your research to learn more, but you're going to learn quite a bit in this interview today with Stephanie and I. So hold on tight and thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. I've been waiting to have this conversation. Um, I did a long introduction. There's so many accolades. You know, we had to water it down. But I think the most important thing is you are one of my best friends. And so really, really thankful to have you here. You are the godmother of Kingston, my oldest son, and been a thought partner, good girlfriend, bridesmaid, all the things. <laughs> 
But we're not, we, we, we might slip into a little bit of that, but today for the most part, really, really happy to have you here to continue our conversation on the future. So thanks for being here. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. All right. So we just gave your bio, which of course folks can also get a copy of on the Junebug website, but tell our audience one thing that people might not know about you. That's not evident in the bio. Oh gosh. Um, The one nerd aspect of me is that I am, um, I love historical documentaries. I Mm. love, love, love historical documentaries. I watch them all the time and I love reading uh, historical documentaries as well. Um, And I don't think that's the last good one. What's the last good one you you watched? Oh gosh, what was the last good one that I watched? Oh God, mm. I've actually been watching trash during the uh, <laughs> during COVID. That's another way. That's another way to just lighten the load. It's just to turn around and and watch trash. But actually, one of the things that I I watched, believe it or not was this was actually historical footage of um of John O'Neill performing his character Junebug. That's mm. been something more recent. Um I was actually looking at him do um it was some footage that I found. Um and I was actually watching that. Uh and I tend to I tend to do that from time to time to go back into um revisit something that I hadn't seen in a while. Um, and always, uh, with, with Baba John, whenever you see him perform, there's always something new that you never really noticed or picked up before, um, Mm -hmm. in, in the character, um, that he does, but it, it was really good. Um, it was watching him do that and watching him also sit down and talk about the character and how he came up with the character, which is also, um, happens to be the name of the organization, um, All right. And I run. So yeah, that's that would say that was the last thing that I sat down and I watched of footage. Well, I'm excited. I um just ran across a picture in my phone of John holding Kingston. So that mm-hmm. was really nice to um, and definitely have been missing him in this moment and wondering all the things he would share with us. So we're going to talk a lot about John O'Neill. Um, and thanks for sharing that, that fact. Um, so let's actually talk a little bit about the past. So we've been doing this series that's on the future. So we talked about the future of Black business. We've uh, talked about the future of philanthropy. We've talked about um, the future of, uh, you know, nonprofits post COVID in this moment where so many things are shifting in our world. And so now we're going to launch into a series on the future of black art and culture. So I think it's important that in order to understand the future, we really, um, are clear about the past. So would you tell us a little bit of the history of, of Junebug and say more about who John O'Neill is and was? Sure. So uh, Junebug is considered the organizational successor to an older organization called the Free Southern Theater. So the Free Southern Theater was created in 1963. It was founded by three young people, um, Doris Derby, 
the late Gilbert Moses and the late John O'Neill, who then started Junebug Productions after he closed the doors to Free Southern Theater. So Junebug now has um, is in its 40th year um, wow. on its own. Wow. We're in our 40th year. Um, so that says a lot. It's, it's quite something to be a 40-year-old legacy institution like uh, Junebug is. But, you know, Junebug, there is so many aspects of Junebug and the history um, that uh, steeps all the way back to the civil rights movement because Free Southern Theater was considered one of many cultural arms of the civil rights movement, which is thus the name Free Southern Theater. There were lots of freedom movements, freedom riders, freedom summer. Um, and Jumba, I mean, Free Southern Theater got started because um, they thought, well, actually it was Doris Derby who said this, that if theater was to mean anything to anyone, it most certainly should mean something to the people who were fighting for freedom in um, Mississippi. So it was started at Tougaloo College. Uh, Free Southern Theater was started at Tougaloo College. Um, they couldn't have been any older than the 20s at that time. Um, and having the forethought to turn around and to have um, to offer theater. But if you can imagine before people were long before site responsive hmm. or site specific works, you had Free Southern Theater that did full productions, theatrical productions in the cotton fields of rural Mississippi. Wow. Wow. And so, um, you know, there's something to say about, you know, when you put your art where the people are, when the when the work is there where the people are. And I think um, that's the thing that has carried over from time and time again from into from the Free Southern Theater into where Junebug is now, the idea of the work being where the people are. Now, it's interesting because as an organization, you know, we don't have an, an actual space. There's not a theater space that is Junebug's. Um, and I see that actually as a strength. I think that's actually been a strength for us because it allows us to go and to explore these different spaces. And in that way, our net is just so wide, I think, inside of the city that things can happen on the street and they have. Um, they can take the shape of a, a, a New Orleans second line procession. They can be inside a proscenium theater. Um, they can happen on street corners. They can happen anywhere, Congo Square. Um, and I think that's that's actually been a strength for us uh, to carry on. And just like Free Southern Theater during that time, looking at what 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 that type of work would mean to the people, you know, our quest for freedom hasn't shifted. It hasn't really changed much. We still, you know, it looks a little different. There's a remix to it. Um, mm -hmm. But we are still on that quest for for freedom and um, for freedom and equity for 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 all of us, really. So we continue our work really continues to be at that intersection of art and activism. So I want to take the conversation two different places. Um, I want us to explore, you know, specifically just how this moment in time, this moment of pandemic and protest is impacting um, Black art and culture. Um, so I definitely want to talk a lot about that. I also want to talk about the role of Black art, 
artisans, um, culture bearers in the movement. Right. So you're talking about this history of free Southern theater, as well as the history of Junebug. Can you say a little bit more in, in your own your own history? Right. As a choreographer, um, as a actress, say a little bit more about the role that art has played um, in the movement. Right. In activating or just in the culture. Mm-hmm. Art, you know, it's so funny because I. um I grew up in New Orleans, but I was born in um, Picayune, Mississippi. And, you know, art as we see it or as it is in the big city, New Orleans is big city for us in Picayune, right? Um, art, um, as we see it, art in culture are things that are just always surrounded me, always. And it was always a foundation for which our family came together and how our family was linked to other people in the community. So for us, part of that in Picayune would have been through gospel music and it would have been through the church. It would have been through the cooking. It would have been through our gathering practices and how we gather with each other. It would be, you know, in shelling peas, um, Mm -hmm. shucking corn. Um, It's in sharing, you know, it's in how we give and we take care of each other. That's always been a part of our cultural practice. Right. And And Mm-hmm. Exactly. And it's interesting. I never thought about those uh, things as um, as something I would need to tap into within my work, but I'm understanding more and more that that is a carryover. And it is also how we operate as a people. You know, the idea of um, there's art with the big A, right? So then there's, there's the spoken word, there's music. But there is also, I look at gathering practices as a huge part of a cultural practice and one that's been under fire for a very long time. Um, If we go back and we look at whenever it is that Black people start to gather together, that somehow... When it was illegal, right? Here in the world. Exactly. Right. You know, and even to this day, if there are a number of Black faces that gather on a street corner for any reason... um, that you can be sure that that the police or security or somebody somewhere is going to be concerned. And that is so crazy to me because gathering, gathering is the way, in my estimation, those gathering practices are a way for us to recognize each other's humanity. It's the thing that actually has fed us during this time. So I see, you know, the movements that are happening right now I see them as an amalgamation of all the best things um, that are part of our practice, you know, right. taking care of each other, being able to gather in a peaceful way, in a loving way, um, sharing, taking care of each other. You know, mm. I see people sharing things, making sure that folks are fed. Um, I see people, there are all of these, uh, there's an inner and uh, these outer rings that happen, right? So there are people who are actually doing the marching and then there are people who are supporting the marchers. There are people who are sending food. There are people who are sending water. Um, so I, I see it as really a reflection of the best, of our best selves, really, yeah. is yeah. being able to speak out, you know, for something that is unjust and that is, is wrong, 
right? But we're doing it in a way that is a reflection of our best selves, yeah. you know? And, and there's, um, I'm always reminded of this line. It sticks with me so much um, with Sunny uh, Patterson, where she, there's a line in one of her, um, in one of her poems that says, um, it is here that we are at our best while waiting through our worst, you know? Mm. <laughs> and I really that do feel that. Time. That definitely captures this time as Sunny always does. So you said a few things which are so interesting to me, right? About how, um, you know, art with the big A, art culture has sustained us. And in many ways, it's been our ability to create and imagine, right, a future beyond what our current circumstances were that has actually fueled the movement. So believing mm-hmm. in freedom, when you haven't experienced freedom, is creativity, right? <laughs> right? right. That radical imagination, mm-hmm. you know, that Robert Kelly talks about. So, so interesting, you know, the way in which, you know, you talk about it is, is culture has sustained us. It has given us an image of future. It has affirmed our humanity. And like you said, it's everything. It's the food. It's, you know, the things that we normally tag as culture, but also those gathering practices, how we bury our people, which unfortunately in this time of pandemic, we're unable to do. So Stephanie, what I was trying to say is in this moment of protest and pandemic, um, there's so many ways in which art and culture is sustaining people and also so many ways in which we can't do the things that have normally sustained us. Um, And I think it's such an interesting paradox where, to your point, at the same time, the best of ourselves emerge is also when we can't do the things that we would normally do to heal and support folk, you know? Yeah. And even within that, in the city of New Orleans, you know, we will find a way to put a remix on all of that. We will find a way to turn around and show our support. So I'm seeing where people are in their cars and now they've created these like car driven processions past a place, you know, just to show the support um, for, for the family. It's a, that's an important thing for us, how we show up for each other, how we physically show up for each other is such an important, um, part of our, also of our cultural practice of letting go, you know, of mourning, of celebrating, um, bringing your physical self to that is, um, it's an important thing. It's an important part of that practice. Yeah. So, so important. So I want to talk a little bit more about your role at Junebug and the role to sustain this 40-year-old legacy arts institution in the middle of a pandemic. Um, So can you talk a little bit just about how you're faring and how you're thinking about navigating the waters ahead? Hmm. Well, I mean, I think I was like everybody um, when when it started to unfold before us um, in shock. Um, there was a moment of pause um, and then a, a moment of scrambling to see, are we going to be all right? And asking ourselves, or can we actually do this? So fortunately for us, we spent a good bit of time trying to show ourselves up and that has actually paid off for us in this moment. Um, so we're good in this year. I am concerned about what the future holds. Um, 
because I'm concerned about the, you know, as you know, any of the decisions that are made now um, have have long term, um, you know, could potentially have long term effects. Right. So we have yet to find out what the decision making now will how it will affect our future. Uh Um, But, you know, we're able to hold on. Our first thing is really making sure that we're able to um, hold on to our staff, making sure that they're okay because they're a family to us. So making sure that they're okay and that they have their health insurance during this time. Um, Many of us um, are, um, you know, are responsible for our family. So family goes beyond um, the person that you might, you know, um, be married to at the time. Your family is your extended family, you know? And so that means, you know, some of us, if you're like me, I'm the oldest. And so I have parents that are aging. I have a 94 year old grandfather. They are in Mississippi, which is now the fastest rising, um, in the number of cases. So I'm deeply concerned about that, like everybody else, you know, so there's this strange mix of navigating, uh, what is work, and what is uh, personal, right? What, how do you, you know, navigate your family and care for your family, take care of yourself and also take care of the organization. But so far we're doing really good. Um, I think, uh, you know, I'm one who, sometimes I think I can come off as a little aloof. I said that to people before, but it's not that at all. It's, I'm in deep thought about things and because, you know, a quick answer isn't the thing that I'm never known for quick answers, um, especially when I know that they're, it's more complicated. It's, you know, I can give you a quick answer if it's simple. If it's not simple, I'm not going to give you a, a quick answer. Um, and so a lot of people were flocking to, um, you know, these online platforms, which admittedly I was not excited about at all but for looking at it as a way to maybe explore our archival materials as a way of kind of looking back, you know, looking back at the past. And so that's been exciting um, to do. And that was already on our, on our plate to do as part of our 40 year anniversary. But, you know, I had to pause for a moment. I said, what is it about this, this virtual, these virtual platforms that isn't exciting for me. And I think part of it was that I felt like I would be leaving people behind. And and then I realized that this is actually a moment in time. Doesn't mean that I'm going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. You don't do that. There will come a time when we'll be able to come back to some semblance of gathering, right? In person. That will never, you know, the online will never trump how we gather in person but rather expand. But where I really got excited about these virtual gatherings is in sitting down and thinking about what are the ethical design considerations for online gathering? So how do we do that? How do we create platforms that human rights, human effort, and human experience are the grounding um, or, or the platform in which we build something on. That got me excited, right? Uh, the idea of being behind the design and the creation of something that is more in alignment with our values, um, mm-hmm. that, that is exciting for me. And I think that like everybody else, what this has made clear is that 
we haven't been, I think we haven't been radical enough in our imagination for what it is that's possible. Um, I think we have to be bold with those things that we see um, and that we have to just name it. And so why not? Some things they said we couldn't do before. And guess what? Now we're in a space that we have to do it. Right. So it was possible all along. Right. Yeah, you know, absolutely. absolutely. 1200, a check for $1,200 went out to every household. So reparations mm-hmm. was possible. Okay. Was possible. <laughs> <laughs> we can, right. can depopulate the jail. Right. But we Right. Like yeah. so many right. things. Right. We can give black business owners what they're due. Right. We right. Can fund right. The way we do their white counterparts, all the things. Um, so, so you've talked a little bit about kind of what I was going to ask you next, just about how this is impacting you creatively as an artistic director. You know, how is this stretching you to think outside your box? Um, And so interesting that you had talked earlier about space, which in many ways, right, like that was the pinnacle of success. In a uh, a couple of weeks, we're going to hopefully be talking with Camilla Forbes, who now um, runs the Apollo Theater, who went to Howard University with me and you, because you're also a (laughs) bike. Um, but anyway, I think it's so interesting how quickly that flipped, right? Like where acquiring a space was seen as, as the pinnacle, as the asset, you know, that these institutions were always striving for. And now you find yourself in a place where, you know, you're not burdened by a specific space when we don't actually know what gathering will look like in the future. So I thought that was pretty much a, that's a huge coincidence, not coincidence. I know more than a coincidence. It was intentional on your part, but um, you know, there's some upside to having that kind of flexibility as a non-residential type of, you know, company. For sure. I mean, our, our, our colleagues and um, are, are struggling right now um, with their space. And, you know, of course people have been able to pivot and to, you know, to make lemonade, so to speak. But, um, you know, there's so much to think about. There have been really hard decisions that have had to, that people have had to make. Um, and, and we very, we may very well in the future find ourselves in a space to make some hard, um, decisions, but we want to make sure that we do that with a level of, um, transparency. And I, I, that was the first thing I did was I called everybody together and I was like, listen, we've done, we've done the math. We're good for now. We're going to be good for now. Um, and I think that we can, if we can struggle through this, we may be able to come out on the other side, maybe better off than we were before. Um, but this doesn't, we didn't have to make a pivot because we'd actually spent such a, a, a huge amount of time on a, on a strategic plan prior to this, that it wasn't a pivot for us, but rather a sharpening of our focus. Absolutely everything that was named inside of that strategic plan still remains front and center. It's still very important, all of it, including how we talked about technology, believe it or not. We talked about technology many years ago, um, saying what is the digital extension of um, of story circle? What is the digital extension of how stories are shared, stories are gathered? Um, so we have been thinking about this for a while. We just had not been connected to the right people to be able to really operationalize it. 
But guess what? Now we are. Um, and so here you are, you know, it's with the times that you think that nothing is that, you know, the, that you make the impossible possible. And that's kind of where we are in this moment. Um, and so it is exciting for me to think creatively about that because in the virtual space, believe it or not, um, things, the crazier the idea uh, the more hype they get about it. The techies get really excited about that. They're like, really? Yeah, <laughs> let's, let's see if that's possible. And that just kind of frees you up in a way that, um, you know, if you're inside of a theater, you can't have an open flame. You can't do this, you can't do that. So now this just kind of opens you up in a way that's super exciting um, as a creative. Um and I, in a way that I wasn't excited before. So I think that that is probably the most surprising thing for me mm. is um, seeing how now I'm like, let's dive into the Like, let's now really dive into this, into right. this thing as an extension of not a replacement, but as an extension to be able to broaden right. our ability to do things. Well, it's so interesting, right? Because in many ways, um, imagination is an opening up, but in many ways, limitation can be the source of creativity because now you have to figure out what do I do with what I have? How do I stretch this resource or reimagine it in a way I never had before? So let's talk a little bit more about what's at stake for Black art and culture. I've, you know, been definitely sitting with the the news, just like everybody else, and thinking about the way in which COVID is disproportionately impacting Black communities. And what that means is disproportionately, you know, killing our elders, many of whom are the artists and the culture bearers, you know, those cornerstones in our community, those folks who would gather us, those folks whose music or artwork, et cetera, would be kind of the healing that we would need in a time of pandemic or the drumbeat to the protest. So as you think about where you are in Junebug and, and your colleagues, talk a little bit about what you what's at stake for Black art and culture in this moment. There's so many things at stake. I mean, long before there was uh, COVID, there were so many other things in the city of New Orleans, right? There were so many other things in the arts landscape in general. Um, it is more than a notion to be um, leading a black institution that's 40 years, because generally when you get to the 10, 20 year, 30 year mark, some people don't make it past that. You don't make it to 40 years. We have seen doors close on us. Uh, we've been witnessing that for many years now, uh, doors closing on historic black uh, institutions and theaters have been closing for many years now. So that has always been, right? And then add to that this COVID disruption, um, which for us, you know, if you're not able to right, really pivot and figure it out, um, it's been deadly for some, right? right. Um, and so we're in a space now of, I think things that we have already, things that we've done already and how we've been thinking about partnership now are ever more present, um, really deepening our partnerships with people. We need each other. 
that's actually how we've been able to survive is that um, this network that you spend so much time uh, cultivating and growing and deepening. Um, I'm finding, you know, a great sense of relief in being able to lean on some of my colleagues um, in that way. And I think we're going to do more of that. I think working in silos is deadly. I think it always has been. It always has been. This has made it really, really clear. Um, our, our, <laughs> and it's what, when I, I named the disruption, because we're not just seeing our doors close. We're also looking at our, the white institutions. Um, mm-hmm. And in lots of ways, in lots of ways, we are, we've done something within the black institutions that some white institutions have not. And that's in our caring for people and our caring for um, the organizations in which we work with. That means something. So you see that, 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 that cultural and um, that social um, collateral that you carry, it means something, right? Yeah. Sometimes people say that you can't put that on a spreadsheet. Guess what? It's cash. It's cash. It's cash yeah. because these are the people who will show up, who want to show up, and they want to show up in spaces that see them. So now you're looking at a reflection of what's happening on the inside of these protests. Well, these protests are happening because we have historically not been seen. Like we can't, we, we see no reflection of ourselves, right? We don't see a reflection of ourselves in the artwork either, right? Which is why you have organizations like a June Bug and these other organizations so that we can be able to show the beauty, the nuance, you know, that black people are not, we're not monolithic, right? So we get to show that, right? We get to show that through our work, through our connections, through our convenings with people. And that actually means something right now. So when I made that comment about if we're able to tough this moment out, um, it's disrupted some of our white colleagues in ways that I'm not sure they'll be able to bounce back because people didn't feel value in that space. They didn't feel like they were valued. Their black bodies were just seen as, you know, as, as butts and seats and not as people and not as uh, a reflection, even to be uh, a reflection inside of their programming. And so now we'll see where that, how we will be positioned afterwards. I do think that there will be a need for healing and for beauty and for gathering in the way that we do, that we can really see each other. There'll be a need for that. Um, and we're poised and ready and excited to be able to do that um, in community with our, with, with our folks. That is, I think that I keep going back to this bit of this cultural thing of gathering is so ingrained in us in the South but particularly in New Orleans as well, I, mm. you can come out. The, we were at our best during COVID where I have I sat out on my front porch and had a conversation with the woman across the street and my neighbors down the street. 
Like we all sat there in the evening as the sun was going down, drinking wine and talking to each other on each other's front porch. Um, and that had never happened before. So right. I really do think that it pulls out the the best in us um, during that time. I, I'm concerned also about some institutions may not make it out of right. this. Yeah, um, that's so and- real. No, so I was going to say, you know, there's a few things that you just said. One, you know, you think about the birth of the formal Black arts movement, which was about the fact that we didn't see ourselves reflected and reflecting ourselves to ourselves, but also as a tool of rebellion, right? Um, And in many ways, that's still where we are. That's still the role that art and culture plays in in our communities is to reflect ourselves to us. Um, but also uh, to, you know, activate that radical imagination and creativity um, and to propel the people forward. I think the other thing that um, is really, really interesting is this idea of of culture and the differences in culture and the way in which, you know, social networks is currency. You know, folks have been saying that for so, so long. I mean, you know, whether it's your grandmother watching, you know, your child so you can go to work, you know, that's a, a service of that folks would otherwise pay for. So that idea of um, a sharing culture, a culture in which, you know, people trade, you know, time and service, um, you know, with each other is just really interesting how that looks at the institutional level, which is what you're talking about um, and the way you've been able to lean on um, your colleagues. So um, I want to just start wrapping our our conversation up. Um, We're getting close to the end of time. Um, And I want to just talk a little bit about what you all are working on at Junebug. This is your 40th year. Our audience wants to know what to look out for and also so important um, how we can support you, you know, back to that idea of sharing culture. What does that mean to show up, um, our audience to show up for this 40 year old legacy black arts institution? Yeah. Well, um, there've been so many things that, you know, we really can only go probably what we have to reevaluate what we're going to do every quarter. But what we do know is that we will have, um, a gala ish. <laughs> it will either be online or it'll be a combination of online and person, but we will be celebrating our 40 year anniversary through a series of um, both conversations and performances. That'll be a combination of online and in person. We'll be doing that. That'll probably be gearing up more towards the end of uh, the fall um, in spring. And, um, you know, fingers crossed, we were supposed to be presented Juneteenth in New York. Um, mm. Gomila, the piece that I, um, that I directed, supposed to be presented in New York at the, um, in Brooklyn at the Botanical Garden outside. And so right now we're in conversation for that to be presented during Juneteenth next year, uh, 2021, at the Botanical Garden again. So I'm very excited about that. Um, and, you know, we're, we're going to send some good energy in that direction that we'll be able to gather in person. It'll be really beautiful and magical. Um, if we're able to do that, that'll be with our friends over at actually 
at High Arts, formerly Hip Hop Theater Festival, which your girl yeah. Camilla, yeah. Um, right. with high, yeah, so um, uh, High Arts and um, with the uh, 651 Arts in Brooklyn and the, in partnership with the Botanical Garden um, in Brooklyn. It's going to be magical. Awesome. Well, keep us posted on all things Junebug and we will make sure to get information out to our audience to let them know how they can continue to show up and what to look for later on this um, fall. So I um, have a couple of questions that we end every interview with. They're rapid fire questions. And so um, I'll ask the question and you will share what comes to mind. Before that, before I do that, though, I do want to shout out Brenda McKee. (laughs) I want to shout out your mama. I meant to do that earlier and wanted to... Make sure she heard her name. So shout out to Stephanie's mom, Brenda McKee in Picayune, Mississippi. Mm-hmm. So we'll start with our questions um, and just tell me what comes to mind. Okay. Okay. So the first question is, how would you define freedom? As breath, as a reflection, as deep water. As waves, I keep coming back to water. I just feel like water washing over me. Um, Mm. What inspires you to keep fighting? Family. Mm. My family. I don't, I I come from folks that um, are tough. And, um, you know, when Katrina happened here, I remember telling somebody specifically and they said, you're going back to New Orleans. I said, yes, I'm going back to to support my community. I got to be a part of helping build my community. And um, and I was like, it's not you know, that's where I live. That's where my parents live. That's where my sister lives. So it's not just about, you know, I'm doing this for for us. You know, so that's what keeps me going is my family. I'm doing that for even those people that I don't even know. There's a whole nother generation of people that I'm hopefully I would like the legacy to be something that's laid down. That's in consideration for people who come many generations um, from now who I won't even be able to know. I won't know them, you know, Mm -hmm. but I'm hoping to lay something down for them in that way. Radical imagination. That's how we define it mm-hmm. at Converge. Um, mm-hmm. So the last question is, who are your personal heroes or sheroes? Oh, man. My mother, who you mentioned her name, Brenda McKee. Um, my father, Wilfred McKee, who is, I think, one of the smartest people. Um, that I know he's so smart and so uh, kind and, um, and has such great insight. Um, my grandfather is the same way. He teach taught me generosity. And, um, you know, I come from, you know, a group of a family that's very generous um, and generous in all the ways um, they teach you kindness. They teach you that, that kindness that you got to dig down deep for when you're hurt. <laughs> 
you know, when you're a Scorpio, it's hard, but you got to, but you, you still hear in the back of your head. That's not how we do things. That's not how you do things. And so it helps you find your best self uh, to kind of triumph in that. Um, you know, oh my goodness, there's so many people to turn around and name. You know, I really think that it's like everyday people I find as uh, some of my heroes and sheroes. And then there are people who I've never met, um, but that I am deeply inspired by um, the work that they do. Uh, Dr. Derby, I'm still in conversation with her. I'm deeply inspired by how brave she was and to be a woman during that time back during the civil rights movement. Um, John O'Neill has been, oh my God, he has added to my work and my life in such a deep way. Uh, Jawale Zoller, who you know, um, Dr. Kimberly Richards, the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond, um, for helping me understand my, my, you know, racial construct in a way that makes me feel really, I'm very clear. There's a clarity I'm thankful for that. So grateful for, for that. that clarity. So grateful for that clarity. So, I mean, it's just so many people. I, I, if I had to describe it, I describe it as like, there are just these many hands that have been laid on me to kind of push and push me forward in the world. And that's been my community. Um, and I hope I'm a good representative of, of my community, but I feel like they are the ones responsible for me being here and doing what it is that I'm doing. And I try to make them proud every day. Well, I know that they're proud. I'm proud of you. And thank you so much for gracing us with the deep wisdom and insight. I'm so excited that our audience got to witness this conversation. Um, and so we will make sure folks know where to find you, but do you want to give some shout outs in terms of websites or Instagram handles so folks can follow along and check in on Junebug? Absolutely. So Junebug is at uh, our website is www.junebugproductions.org. Um, on Instagram, we are, um, I mean, I should know this June bug, <laughs> June bug Nola on Instagram. Um, I'm pretty sure we have a Twitter account, but you know, I'm not a Twitter person, so you will not find me there, but you can also find us as June bug productions on Facebook as well. All right. Well, we'll repeat those for folks just in case you missed them. Thank you so much, Stephanie, for being with us. It is a joy and a pleasure. And trust me, we will have you back. We will absolutely have you back. All right. So much for being here. Love you. Love you. Thank you. All right, y'all. So this week in our segment, Hey Sis, I See You, we want to honor Kalisha Garrett. She is the principal consultant at Gen X Consulting Group, a firm focused on business development, strategic sourcing, and vendor compliance management. The executive director of the New Orleans Regional Black Chamber of Commerce, which covers a 10 parish region in Southern Louisiana. And she is also the executive director of the Louisiana Chamber of Commerce Foundation. In addition, she is a licensed real in the state of Louisiana. and the onset of her career, she worked as a director of drug research services, a legal nurse consultant, and a staff nurse. She then obtained her Series 766 and insurance license, working as a financial advisor with Merrill Lynch. 
Subsequently, Kalisha worked as Director of Public Relations, Special Projects for Kristen Palmer, New Orleans City Council Member of District C. Most recently, Kalisha was a part of the Supplier Diversity Management Team for Caesars Entertainment in the Gulf South Region and the DBE Regulatory Compliance and Community Relations Manager for Harris New Orleans Casino and Hotel. Kalisha is a graduate of the New Orleans Regional Leadership Institute, Norley, of 2012, and also the Brian Bell Leadership Class of 2010. She serves as a chairwoman of the Louisiana Alliance for Economic Inclusion. She's a board member of the U.S. Black Chambers, Inc., and also the Louisiana Small Business and Entrepreneurship Council the United Negro College Foundation, New Orleans. She previously served as vice chair of the New Orleans Multicultural Tourism Network and co-chair for the GNO Women's Breakfast, treasurer of the Women's Business Enterprise Council South, treasurer for NONBMBA, vice president of Urban League's GNO Young Professionals, and a board member of the Biomedical District, Norley, GNO Inc., Next Gen Council, Young Audiences Charter School, Emerge Louisiana, the Arts Council of New Orleans, Junior Achievement American Diabetes Association, and the Jefferson Parish Chamber of Council, an advisory council member with Ignite for Change. So shout out to you, Kalisha. We see all the work that you are doing to ensure that Black businesses here in New Orleans have the resources they need to get through this crisis. And we just wanted to lift you up. All right. I see you, sis. Thank you for all the work that you are doing in our community. So before we close out today, I want to take a minute to recap some of the big ideas that Stephanie and I discussed. So pandemic protests and the power of culture. Stephanie reflected on the birth of the Free Southern Theater and Junebug being born in the middle of a movement and really this idea of bringing the work, bringing art culture to where the people are and the importance right of artists and culture bearers and the role of our institutions to gather us reflect us imagine us and heal us we also talked about sharing as a cultural practice right in a survival mechanism in a way in which it not only sustains us as individuals but also is sustaining our institutions um unfortunately given our history we have learned how to endure we have had to be resilient and i think what stephanie was really alluding to is what is that righteous struggle look like that thing that brings out the best of us. We talked a lot about imagination and creativity, and y'all know I'm in love with this concept around radical imagination. And the idea that this moment gives us an opportunity to expand our creativity by thinking outside the box. So really thinking about ways to cultivate creativity from the limitations imposed by the pandemic and how do we think about using technology? Um, but if we do so, which I thought was really interesting how um, Stephanie phrased this, how do we still do that in a way that aligns with our values? So I'm so excited to see what they come up with at Junebug. By extension of this idea of creativity and imagination, which I just kind of think is ironic, we talked about how when we are forced to, we can actually do the right thing if we so choose. So providing stimulus checks, aka reparations, or being intentional about Black Lives Matter and 
all the ways that we see it happening, that sometimes these moments allow us to really dig deep and get creative and imaginative about who we want to be to each other. So those are the things that I am pulling and taking away from our conversation. I hope you got a lot out of it today. And I really look forward to continuing this conversation with you next week on the future of Black art and culture. Thank you so much for joining us today for Converge for Change, the business of social justice podcast. And thanks again to Stephanie for talking with us. It was really fun to have her on the show. So if you want to follow Stephanie, go to Instagram at Stephanie McKee Anderson. And you can also keep up with Junebug Productions on Facebook, Junebug Productions. That's how you'll find them on Facebook and on Instagram and Twitter at Junebugnola. If you are interested in activating your own philanthropy, you can also support Junebug through their COVID fund. So you can go to www.junebugproductions.org backslash COVID-19. All right, be sure to follow me on social media at I am Takima and follow at Converge for Change. So you will be the first to know about who our next guest is in the series on the impact of COVID-19 on Black art and culture. Thanks again for joining. Hey you, are you following me yet? How else will you be the first to know what's next? You can find all of my podcast episodes on my website, www.convergeforchange.com under the podcast tab. Follow me on social media on Facebook at Converge for for change on Instagram at I am Takima and at converge for change. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast library like Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. You can also catch the show live on WBOK1230.com or if you're in New Orleans, just adjust your radio to WBOK1230 AM every Saturday from 12 to 1 p.m.